Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Eddie Tabash. We will be the only historically despised minority to never start making gains in the election of members of our community to significant political office. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Eddie Tabash. Eddie Tabash is a constitutional and civil rights lawyer here in Beverly Hills and has long been one of the leading crusaders in defense of separation of church and state and secular society in the United States. He has also done a number of debates on the existence of God with leading Christian philosophers like Peter von Inwagen, Richard Swinburne, and William Lane Craig. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Eddie, I want to speak to you about electing atheists to public office. You're an atheist, and you ran for the California State Assembly? Twice. Twice? Yes. yes. I was you, a runner-up both times. Could you, could you tell us about those experiences? Well, what happened was the atheism was not an issue, but the problem, particularly in the 2000 race, when I was already known as an atheist, a lot of my fellow atheists would not support me and didn't mm. see the value of a colleague in non-belief getting elected to political office. Mm. And my feeling has been, with 10 years of hindsight, since we are the most unjustly despised minority in America, that we need to have an internal affirmative action program where we support our own for office. Mm. And just like there was a big push in mid-century, 20th century, for other minorities and women and then gays to support their own. We need to learn from that. And I think our model is the gay rights movement. But what comes to mind initially is the independent-mindedness of atheists. And what do we do when there is a viable atheist candidate with whom we don't agree on every issue? Now, my situation was interesting because though I'm a very strong liberal on most issues, I'm not a knee-jerk left-winger. And most atheists are either quite left politically or libertarian. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I happen, and I'll admit unique for a liberal, but I think there is empirical and logical justification for this, I do favor curtailing legal immigration and eliminating illegal immigration, not because of race, but because of overpopulation. California now has almost 40 million people, and our growth of 500,000 a year is primarily due to immigration, legal, illegal, and their children. Now, my argument was once you know that my position on this issue is not based on racism, that a non-believer should support me anyway because for me church-state separation is my number one issue Mm. so the overwhelming majority of liberal democrats i vote for disagree with me on the immigration issue but yet to me church-state separation is paramount also i'm known for advocating decriminalizing prostitution among consenting adults and part of my law practice is defending women arrested for prostitution Well, what happened there is some atheists who buy into 
what I call the unholy alliance between the far left and the religious right of wanting to ban pornography and keep prostitution illegal felt that was problematic. Right. And then on the other side of the spectrum, some very wealthy libertarian atheists would not support me because I had a program for heavily regulating medical insurance and passing new laws to compel them to cover uh, medically authorized payments and to stop what at the time was a very pervasive practice of medical insurance second-guessing doctors hmm. and then not paying for the treatment. Right. So basically, I was to the right of some atheists, to the left of others. And what I'm saying is that unless something is so core with you, if you can't give a brother or sister atheist a pass on some issues, we'll never be able to elect our own to office. Now, it's true that there are many liberal religionists who protect separation of church and state. However, in order for society to evolve, the everybody knows, everybody knows that the hardest thing and the least electable type of individual is the non-believer. Mm -hmm. If we don't break that taboo, right. we will not be on the road to ending the prejudice against atheists. Right. If as a secular humanist you are unable to be elected to even a state legislature, if you're open about it, then we perpetuate the notion that our society will, and rightfully so, elect openly gay people, mm -hmm. thankfully, to office, but will not do so for the non-believer. Mm -hmm. Unless we can demonstrate our electability to various political offices, we will not overcome the awesome social prejudice that is still directed toward us. Yeah. It's really amazing how numerous atheists are compared to how little political influence we have and how few positions of political influence we've been elected to. Do you think that's just because the prejudice is just stronger? Two things. The prejudice is stronger and most non-believers have not internalized the importance of electing other non-believers to mm -hmm. office. Yeah. Two things. And so the prejudice and then also the fact that most non-believers are not willing to give top priority to electing one of their own. Right. Well, Eddie, you said that the model for non-believers in politics should perhaps be the gay movement, which has had serious success in the last 30 years. And so do you think that one of the things they did was to be able to put aside some political differences in order to get gays into public office? I think that was definitely a factor. The other thing was that wealthy members of that community would generously fund mm -hmm. their candidates or candidates sympathetic yeah. to gay rights. Now, when I ran for the state assembly in the Santa Monica-based assembly district in 1994, I was second out of six in the Democratic primary, and the winner was Sheila Kuehl, who at the time was the first openly lesbian candidate for office. And the gay money, as it should, poured in in tremendous amounts for her. Hmm. So my, 
my concern is, would wealthy non-believers have the same motivation that wealthy gay people have yeah. to elect their own to office? Yeah. Also, what's going to make this more crucial is the religious right in the November 2010 elections, a couple weeks from when we're taping this, mm -hmm. is going to unfortunately gain seats in the House and Senate. If President Obama is not reelected in 2012 and a religious right-wing sympathizing president replaces him, we could easily lose the Supreme Court and for the first time in history have a five-vote majority to nullify separation of church and state. Mm. If the national constitution is no longer interpreted to provide equal rights for the non-believer, then the unfortunate but necessary fallback position will be legislative bodies. Mm. And if there are none of us in state legislatures, then all sorts of religion-promoting pieces of legislation will be enacted and then upheld by the courts. So it'll become even more crucial for us to be in legislative bodies because we will now have to kill the legislation there rather than waiting for the Supreme Court to strike it down, which the reconstituted Supreme Court unfortunately will no longer do. Right, right. Well, Eddie, when, uh, when you talk about how we might have to set aside some of our differences and vote for atheist candidates so that we can rectify this very serious problem that we have of prejudice against atheists in America. Um, why should we do that? I mean, it seems like a lot of people are going to feel that other issues are more important to them than getting atheists in office. Well, but you see, that's the problem. Yeah. If you want a secular society, you cannot continue to exclude from political office the most secular among us. Mm. And so everybody has to make their own judgment call. To me, there comes a point where you have to say the permeation of political offices with our own is important enough that I can let the candidates slide on this or that issue. Mm -hmm. Now everybody will make that adjustment and draw the line for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it has to be done. Otherwise, we will never get into office. We will be the only historically despised minority to never start making gains in the election of members of our community to significant political office. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're quite a ways behind all of the other despised minorities. Absolutely. Eddie, do you think there's more that we can learn from the success of homosexuals in getting into public office in the past several decades? I mean, that's a just very recent example of a despised minority that has had a lot of success. Yes, we can learn from the way they unify behind their candidates, the money they raise for their candidates, and the fact that they have enough money to hire major campaign managers hmm. to conduct those campaigns. Hmm. For instance, a campaign consultant 
who actually has beaten me twice, representing the victor in both my 94 challenge for the assembly and my 2000, even though the person who beat me in 2000 when I was also runner-up was not gay. But uh, Park Skelton, a Southern California-based political campaign consultant, is amazingly effective. Hmm. And he goes out of his way, as he should, to take on gay candidates. Hmm. So we need to get people of that caliber with an enormous winning streak to take on our candidates. Because sometimes in close races, the savvy and skill of the campaign manager, the campaign consultant, determines the winner. Do you have any ideas about what it is that, because there are, there are so many wealthy non-believers, but they do seem particularly uninterested in contributing large sums of money to atheist political campaigns. Do you have any ideas about why that is? Do, you, do they think that it's just unwinnable at this point? I or? think that's part of it. Yeah. I think that's part of it. And for instance, I just made a contribution to Dr. Wynne LeGros, yeah. who is an open atheist running in a very difficult district in Virginia. Yeah. However, whether he wins or not, his campaign is credible enough that I did make a contribution. Right. And I did not interrogate him as to where he stands on every single issue. Yeah. In fact, I didn't want to be bothered with it because I wanted a brother atheist to make a credible showing. Yeah. And for me, I actually couldn't care less because in this particular congressional race, for an atheist candidate to even give a good account of himself in a southern state, in a race for Congress, overshadowed any other consideration. Yeah. And against an extremely religious incumbent and and an incumbent with great resources as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think maybe it sounds like you're saying a lot of what needs to happen is, first of all, atheists need to make credible showings so that we can convince non-believing donors that the atheists can be elected. And then as we do more of that, we'll have more atheists who are elected. Is that the story? That's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big part of it. Eddie, what do you think is the best way for atheist political candidates to confront the prejudice against non-believers because you could try to keep your atheism under wraps in order to have better political success or should we be out atheists and just face the music? I'm a practical politician. My view is, and I wrote this in my Internet Infidels article in 2001, and I've gotten some flack for this, but I really don't care. I think it's morally permissible to not bring it up in a dicey electoral district unless you're asked. If you're asked, I wouldn't lie. But here's my analogy. If you're a light-skinned black person running in a racist area, the people don't need to know you're black. So by not offering it unless asked, you're not harming the voters. As long as you're honest with what you will do once elected, right. I don't believe you should be morally required to feed the prejudices of right. voters. Right. 
So in my race, when I was already out as an atheist, I didn't mention it at all. If someone asked me, I wouldn't deny it, but I didn't bring it up. Yeah. Because had I been elected in what was a heavily minority district where I was the only Caucasian candidate, I would have done a lot for the poor black and Hispanic residents of that state assembly district. And quite frankly, there was no need to feed what would have been unfortunately the prejudice in those communities yeah. against a non-believer and deprive them of a public servant who would have really addressed their working class issues. So curiously, had I offered that on my own to them and turned them against me, they would actually be hurting themselves yeah. even though they hadn't yet in the communities overall developed the awareness level to recognize that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you would have gotten flack for that because like you said, you were already out as an atheist. It was just a matter of what information do you want to put into the campaign. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, for instance, when I met President Obama during his campaign, and I was supporting him vigorously, gave him a lot of money for the presidential campaign, I even said to him at the time, I said, Senator, even if you have to go to Rome and kiss the Pope's ring in order to get elected in this crazy religious country, whatever your personal beliefs are, do it, because I don't want John McCain putting religious right-wingers on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Now, I got flagged for that too, but I see no problem with that. Hmm. If a candidate who I know will protect the Supreme Court and preserve church-state separation has to verbally pander to the religious, I can't expect them not to. Because if they don't, the religious right candidate will win and will lose church-state separation. That's not being dishonest. That's just being pragmatic in politics. What I'd like to say is I can't emphasize enough the importance of individual atheists sincerely seeing what issues they can give a colleague in atheism a pass on in order to support that atheist candidate. Because if we continue to hold brother and sister atheists to concordance with us on every single issue, yeah. we'll never be able to support any of our own. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an impossible standard. Uh, I mean, you've got to pick your battles, and this is a pretty important one. Yeah. Well, Eddie, apart from politics, you've also engaged in a number of debates, like I said at the beginning, with Christian philosophers. Uh, can you tell us what that experience is like, and what do you think the value of these debates are? Well, I think that there's really nothing more important that the atheist movement can do than to debate the top-flight religious philosophers on college campuses. Hmm. <clears throat> because that's where you have an audience where the young people are most receptive yeah. and open-minded. And future leaders are on today's university and college campuses. And to have them watch, many of them for the first time ever, religious ideas being countered by non-belief is highly significant. And I think that's very important. Uh, for me, I believe it's one of the most important things I do and I engage in extensive preparation. Yeah. 
because when you're up against somebody with a PhD in philosophy, even if their arguments are faulty, it takes a lot of unpacking to demonstrate that. Yes. And I think it's, it's very important that there be a slew of us who have the capacity to successfully argue against the claims of religion on a philosophical, technical, and scientific basis. Yeah. And it's not just knowledge of science and philosophy. A lot of it is skill in presenting these arguments and these ideas very quickly in a debate. Yes. And with and in a way that really hits people at at their emotional core and is not just uh, logically precise in this way that's very hard to convey during a, a brief debate. But you also have to win technically. Yeah. You just can't make emotional appeals. Yeah. You have to win technically. So you can do a combination of both. But my view is that a cogent argument does double duty. It wins technically and it has an emotional appeal Yeah. because think, it's right. I think what I'm saying is that there are lots of great arguments to make on behalf of non-belief and maybe we should be picking the ones among them that can make sense to people in a very quick way. Well, you also yeah. have to pick those arguments that refute the claims of your opponent mm -hmm. because the surest way to lose a debate is to ignore what your opponent says. Yeah. Refuting your opponent's arguments and defending your arguments are the most important technical aspects of a debate mm. and that's where the focus has to be. Well Eddie I like how you point out how important these debates can be because like you say especially on college campuses this is when people are really open-minded and really seeking what type of person they're going to have, what values they have, and they, they're encountering all these different ideas. And if you can get out there and present something that they may not be otherwise very well exposed to, that can have a major impact on future leaders of America. And that's precisely why we have to do these debates and why we need skilled and competent debaters out there. So, Eddie, what are some of the I imagine you benefit from having skills of public speaking and debate and argument uh, in your practice as a lawyer. What can people do to develop the skills that would profit them in debates with religious thinkers uh, when, they don't, when they're not already a lawyer or somebody like that who has those types of skills? They have to be able to focus in on learning the technical arguments, delivering them rapidly, and yeah. being able to rapidly respond to the opposing arguments. Yeah. And if people can't cultivate those skills, they won't be effective in debate. For instance, I never stop studying atheistic arguments. Hmm. Regardless of how much you know, you can always refine them. Yeah. Yeah, and you can also find better ways of expressing them and, and yes. quicker ways of expressing exactly. them. Exactly. Better analogies that make sense to people. Exactly. That kind of thing. Well, Eddie, how do you go about being getting yourself involved in, in so many debates and public speaking arrangements that can have an impact on young minds? Well, because I'm known, and also I don't do enough of them. Hmm. I don't get enough of the invitations, and I don't do it full time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I would say that our movement is very lucky to have a full-time debater who's very competent and very presentable and very likable, and Dan Barker, 
of the Madison, Wisconsin-based Freedom From Religion Foundation. Yep. Yeah, he's excellent. He has a lot of those great qualities. Well, Eddie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing experimental psychologist Marcel Brass about the neuroscience of free will. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.